although sports tech, if you will, has been around for a while, really the some of the things that are driven now are driven by technologies that actually weren't at scale five years ago. You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. Hello and welcome to Sports Tech Feed. I'm your host, Thomas Loams. Great to have you join us again this week. On today's show, we have Steve Murray, Managing Partner of Revolution Growth. Revolution is a Washington, D.C.-based investment firm that has invested nearly $1 billion in growth stage companies. In 2016, Revolution Growth invested in DraftKings, and Steve joined the board. In April 2020, despite a temporary shutdown among major sports leagues, DraftKings debuted on the public market through a three-way SPAC merger with Steve working closely on the deal. Some other notable sports investments from Revolution Growth include SportRadar, the world's leading supplier of sports and betting-related data, and Clear, the biometric identity company that has made entry into airports and sports stadiums around the country faster, safer, and more efficient. Steve is currently on the boards of Revolution Growth Companies, Big Commerce, Convene, Glowforge, Interactions, Tala, and of course DraftKings. He's also a board observer at Tempest and Uptake. Steve joined Revolution from SoftBank, where he worked for nearly 20 years with some of the most important technology companies of our generation, including Yahoo, E-Trade, GeoCities, GSR Commerce, Alibaba, Fitbit, Cabbage, and many others. It was great to sit down and pick Steve's brain about the investment landscape uh, across sports and technology, and really leaning heavily on his 25 years in what I would kind of be air quotes call mainstream uh, technology investment, and then obviously looking at the subset of of sports tech as as a niche within that. So really interesting and broad-ranging chat. As I said at the beginning, I'm your host, Thomas Loams uh, from Sports Tech World Series. If you'd like to reach out with any questions, uh, feel free to connect on LinkedIn. I think I'm the only Thomas Loams out there, so it should be easy to find. Uh, and of course, subscribe to our Sports Tech World Series newsletter, sportstechworldseries.com forward slash newsletter. That's the easiest way to stay informed of what's happening in the industry and really helps to cut out the noise of, of everything else uh, with all these changes that are, that are happening in the industry and all these updates and M&A activity and all this fun stuff. So definitely uh, highly recommend that as a way to stay in touch. Steve Murray, Managing Partner, Revolution Growth. Welcome to Sports Tech Feed. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've had a fairly varied uh, career in technology and, and obviously uh, from the investment side and now with some, some big roles in some very large sports technology and sports data and sports betting companies. Um, within that term, sports technology, it's a big amorphous term. It covers everything from you know, on-field player tracking units, yes, to off-field fan engagement, AR, whatever else. Within that big blob, um, how do you define or conceptualize the sector? Yeah, sure. It, and it's an accurate observation. Um, at, at its highest level, obviously, the sports tech uh, category is the combination of really the media businesses, the sports businesses and legacy sports businesses overlaid with technology and the intersection of the three, three of those. And in terms of within that sector, how do we think about it and how we look at it, you really have to delve down one level deep. And so sports is not sports. Sports is a whole bunch of different things. It is fans, it is venues, it is players, it's coaches, it's equipment. And it's all those things. And then that overlaid onto, by the way, pro sports is different from college sports, which is different from high school sports, which is different from recreational sports. And sort of the, it's the combination of all, all those things overlaid with the really transformative technologies that are, that, are, um, that are pushing real disruption in those markets is really how we look at it. Yeah, yeah. And, and within that, you know, that, that blob of sports technology, um, what's your investment thesis for evaluating companies? So, and 
kind of second part to that, what's the most valuable areas? Well, the most, I'll give you the answer to the most valuable areas in five years. So currently what we've seen in terms of, uh, obviously that there's been one of our key theses has been the real change in fan behavior and engagement. So we've seen that over the last several years where fans are interacting with sports different than I interacted with sports as, as a youngster, as a, as a person growing up in the Boston area where sports was a big part of my life. I loved watching sports, but I see the way my teenage sons and, and their friends engage with sports. It's very different. They're much more interested in video clips. <clears throat> they actually sit on a Sunday afternoon and watch the red zone. They don't, they don't actually watch a full American football game from start to finish. I'm not sure yeah. they ever have, maybe never will. They engage in fantasy sports uh, discussions amongst their friends and their their uh, colleagues all the time. Um, so there's all kinds of ways in which they engage in sports differently that using technology, much like the basic disruption of media businesses happen or now happening with sports. And at Revolution, we see, we get to really have a bit of a front row seat because one of our uh, partners there, Ted Leonsis, owns a number of professional sports teams and he's involved in a number of the leagues. So We've been seeing some of these trends for some period of time, and obviously we're, um, we're able to take advantage of that from an investment perspective around uh, an investment in DraftKings, an investment in Sport Radar, uh, an investment in Clear, all of, the, all of whom take advantage of different changes in venues and, mm -hmm. and, and fan behavior. So the changing fan behavior is a big, is a big one for us. Um, and I think, I think there's lots of opportunity there, and I think we're probably just starting to scratch the surface. Yeah, 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 definitely. So, I mean, do you foresee in that future? So, scratching the surface starting now, and obviously, we've seen a huge amount of MA activity, right. um, especially from the, the sports data providers and, and anyone seemingly even at arm's length to sports betting within the US. If you have some sort of sports betting, something in your thesis, there's probably a, a SPAC that's interested in <laughs> throwing some cash at you. So, do you foresee over the next few years the consolidation and integration? across those players in the sports space because it, it's in its infancy as an industry. I mean, you can, you can argue as much as you want. Well, sports tech's been around for ages. Like, yes, it has. But if you look at the amount of money pouring in and how, I guess, it's mainstreaming in air quotes, um, do you see that it's just going to be consolidation and we're going to get some, some fangs of the sports, sports world? We're going to get yeah. within sports. You know, I'd also say that, Although sports tech, if you will, has been around for a while, really the, some of the things that are driven now are driven by technologies that actually weren't at scale five years ago. Things like you know, the IoT world is much different than it used to be. Mm. 5G is now starting to roll out, which changes things and what you can enable doing. Obviously, there's blockchain things that address things like collectibles and the like. So there's a, there's a whole host of technologies, although sports tech generally has existed, I think the disruptive technologies that now exist at scale are really starting to provide some of these really fascinating uh, you know, opportunities. The, the ability really through high-speed data networks and, and cloud storage of data is really what powers, if you will, things like Sport Radar, which powers things like DraftKings. And so those things couldn't have existed at scale 10 years ago in the way they do now. Obviously overlaid on that, particularly with respect to sports gaming is a big policy impact, mm -hmm. right? So there's regulatory 
constraints that up until very recently, U.S. states couldn't offer legal support, and it's only in the last couple of that sort of uh, change has happened. It's, it's all those things that are that are tying together. I think that's creating the opportunity. Yeah, and so I mean, the, the to really force your hand on this, do do you think that sport sport radar genius of that ilk are going to be the big the equivalent of your Microsoft, Google, you know, Amazon of of sports? Obviously, those yeah. the, the fangs of big tech do enter sports and they do touch on that, but in terms of say. Um, someone starting a company today, if you're looking for where your exit, your acquisition is going to come from that endpoint, is there going to be say three to four to five key players that are, you know, the, the biggest, the biggest fish in the, in the pond? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different things. I think right now for sure, the M&A opportunities are active and they're not just with the sport radars and sport geniuses of the world, but it's really all, I'd say even more active with the operators you know, the, the DraftKings to the world and those that are also adding uh, products and services to serve their customer bases. And they're doing it in interesting ways. I mean, the combination of uh, Penn and Barstool Sports was a very interesting uh, match that seems to have worked quite well as a customer acquisition vehicle for yeah. Penn. Right. So so I think we're seeing some of that starting to roll out as it specifically relates to the sports data uh, business, I, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I believe that for the time being, the leagues have an interest in having more than uh, one data provider because simply competition breeds, uh, you know, pricing pressure and the like. And so yeah. I, don't, I don't necessarily see either Sport Radar or Sport Genius or anyone else emerging as the sort of only dominant player in that. Obviously, um, we think the world of, uh, of Sport Radar and Sport Genius has a, has a good business as well, and th there will likely be others. But I think the leagues have, a, at least for the time being, have a lot of leverage in trying to spread out the contracts a little bit um, with, w in terms of uh, exclusive data providers. And you've seen recently with the NFL where they actually uh, did a licensing deal where they picked three of the top operators and, and as, a, as opposed to simply one. So it'll, I think there'll be more and more, um, uh, I think for the time being on the data side, there will be more than one company there. There is clearly a lot of M&A going on, but it's not just with the data providers, it's also with the operators. But yeah. again, I think we're just starting to see the beginning of it. Yeah, I mean, you could liken it to the linear broadcast deals that the all the leagues will have multiple, you know, That's right. partners. It's not it, it doesn't profit them well to do um, it just with one partner, and also it's at the point that one partner couldn't afford it. I mean, the latest hundred hundred ten billion dollar deal with the NFL is there's no one that can write that check on the planet. So that's right. So the the NFL um, is such an important contract for you know, folks, the operators and the like that may, it could be that someone may have individually paid that high price, but in doing so, they likely would have left their business in serious financial peril if it, if the deal didn't work out exactly as designed, which by the way, is not in the league's interest as well. Like you, as you, as you made the analogy to the, the broadcasters over the years, it's 
always in the league's interest to have NBC and Fox and ESPN bidding for the Thursday night games, add Amazon into the mix, even better. Right. So then yeah. I think some healthy competition there is, is very much in the league's interest and it seems consistent with how they've operated their business in the past. Yeah, definitely. You've seen that with some European leagues that have had exactly that. They've had one major broadcaster and that deal has turned sour. And then the, the league is just in the worst possible uh, negotiating position to find replacement uh, broadcast partners. So moving on from the, the kind of the uh, investment investment background and the investment forecast and stuff like that, you've got a, as I mentioned at the beginning, quite a diverse um, uh, experience with technology businesses um, and certainly with that helping them with growth and all that kind of stuff, 20 years at, at SoftBank. So what can emerging sports tech uh, companies learn from more established technology investments and successes? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I think you, we touched on some of it, but you start by understanding who are the various players in the ecosystem, if you will. We talked about equipment providers. We talked about fans and coaches and players and venues. Those are all different categories of folks that could be influenced or, or, or impacted. Uh, and then you break out between those. So Players is not one group, but players, pro players act very differently and are trained very, very differently than college players, high school players, club players, and then recreational players. And so considering, um, I think one of the things that sometimes, particularly in sports tech that I've seen that uh, is a little bit of a, uh, you know, is tricky is really product is going after, right? So I've seen different things on IOT as an example, where it's a a force on a shoulder pad for a hockey uh, uh, shoulder pad for, for a, a kid. And you start thinking about the cost of that and maintenance of that and really the utility of that. And it sounds really interesting, except um, as a parent of somebody that, of three kids that played hockey, $2,000 set of equipment to hook up from an IoT perspective, all the various movements that he makes. Uh, may may or may not be the biggest of markets. So I think understanding the end market that you're trying to go through, what is the technology that you're utilizing now? I think we talked about it earlier. It's important, I think, to say, you know, as you said, sports tech's been around for a while, but what is the technology that the company is using now that didn't exist at the scale that it is now that would allow for the disruption that you're seeing potentially happen? You know, we're seeing a huge change Obviously, blockchain at some scale has enabled things like NFTs, which has taken advantage of, you know, lots of interest and excitement about digital collectibles. And that market really has exploded over time, but it was enabled by blockchain at some scale. Obviously, collectibles, collecting baseball cards and the like has been something that sports fans have done for long, long years. But it was this new technology that enabled that. So thinking about what the technology is and why that would be would be different is a, is another another thing, and then then starting to really understand what is that the business model that this this business is trying to you know what's the four three five year plan uh, in terms of what are they trying to build towards? I think that that oftentimes it's it's exciting to think about new products and oftentimes the business model doesn't have to be the first thing that one considers, but that as something's beginning to take scale, thinking about, okay, how is this business going to make money? How is it gonna unseat the competitor? What's its unfair advantage? Again, back to blockchain, I think there's a lot of uh, 
excitement around the potential for a blockchain-like solution to really impact ticketing, which is a huge market. Yeah, and definitely. so then, and so then the question is, how do you unseat Ticketmasters and StubHubs of the world that have entrenched relationships and have invested a lot of money in brand and 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 contracts to to do that? So that's how I would be thinking about this space. Mm, it's interesting. You, you probably said scale the word scale more than any guest we've ever had, and I think that that reflects in um, something that's missed a lot. I mean, it, it feels so fundamental to understand how your solution scales, but um, certainly within sports um, and say pro sports, for instance, a lot of the time companies will just think, oh, well, I'll, I'll sell into pro teams. And you go, all right, what is your, what's your actual addressable market? How are you going to scale that to all the pro teams in, you know, the known universe. Like if we're looking at what, what you are looking at, if you're looking at the U S and then you say, okay, well, Europe, and then you go into uh, smaller markets like Australia and then bigger markets like Asia that are, that have less, less, a lot of the time, less budget, but you know, a lot more potential teams. It's um, it's something that even in the, the sales and marketing um, kind of approach, there's not that scalability. And, um, and if you get saturation in a market, well, you have these relationships, then you need to start introducing multiple products. So that's right. That's yeah, right. That's, if you've got, you've got all those pro teams in the U S great. That's actually not that many customers. It's like, how can you, how can you sell in, um, you know, multiple products, multiple services, whatever else it is to make the most of that. That's right. And I think to your question earlier, around consolidation, I think what we're, we will start to see, uh, and we're starting to see it with the operators, with the data providers and with others, is that some of these interesting but niche solutions will start to be the targets of a lot of consolidation, right? Where the end market for the scale of a particular opportunity might not by itself be big enough. So what we're seeing as an example with the operators uh, is that there's a lot of competition for new um, users in the various states that are rolling out gaming and that those operators quite clearly are trying to find more things that they can offer uh, to their players so that they can you know, keep that customer for a longer period of time and monetize them at a higher rate. So it, it might not just be that they play you know, it's one of the reasons why somebody like a, uh, a FanDuel, DraftKings and others you know, they have a daily fantasy sports business. They also now have a gaming business. In some states, they have iGaming, which is more like um, casino games and the like. And you, they'll add media properties. So you can imagine that the cost of acquiring those customers in super competitive environments starts to go up such that some of the niche players may have a challenge uh, existing at scale on their own, but they might be able to create initial inter very interesting businesses that could be targets for some of these folks. So I think it's just understanding, you know, what business you're in, how big it can become, uh, capitalize your business appropriately, grow at the right scale. And so that you leave yourself with good options when, when, and if the time comes to uh, do something else with your business. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, and it's been interesting to see the, um, the, I guess within verticals, uh, you know, areas of focus within sports tech, but then also across different sports. So you could be a very niche player. And I think of um, sport radar acquisition of a, of a cricket, cricket right. um, uh, tech company. So it was one of those things that it was the technology within that wasn't particularly groundbreaking 
in terms of how it was applied to other sports, it was they were in cricket and that was as a, you know, one of the most popular sports on the planet. Um, that was a great way to break into that market and grow that presence, um, which is, as you said, those that niche, but how you play that and how you go, how can you add to the lifetime value of your customer and then help grow whatever is the entity that's, uh, that's acquiring you. So to, and, and to kind of st- spell it out a little bit more, your, your point around of being appropriately capitalized, is that more around dilution? And this probably speaks to our entrepreneurs and, and founders on the, on the uh, listening, say on the call and on the call, listening to the podcast. Um, is that more don't overextend yourself, don't dilute too much because then if you go for an acquisition, you're not going to have control and you're not going to actually see some upside? Yeah, I, I think it's that. It's also, um, you know, we've been living in, and you highlighted it, it's probably the reason we're having this conversation. In part, there's been a lot of activity in the sports tech arena over the last year, enthusiasm about anything sports betting related and, and the ecosystem that's being built around that. It's still relatively early days in that. So there's a lot of opportunity for companies to be built, um, which means that it's possible sometimes for companies to raise lots of money early in their life. But it's, you know, one of the things that I've seen over the many years I've been doing this is if you raise too much money at the wrong price too early in your life, then sometimes you're, you're stuck because if your last round was you raised 50 million at $200 million valuation, well, nobody, nobody that did that is going to be particularly happy if your exit is to sell the business for a hundred million dollars. If you're, if you, instead raise 10 million at a $40 million valuation and you can sell the business for a hundred million dollars. Everybody's happy usually. So the, it, it depends, you know, you have to, obviously entrepreneurs are fearless and they're aggressive and that's why they can do amazing things and make the world go around. But um, prudently assessing the market that you're in and the likely size of it um, is, is part of, appropriately capitalizing the business so you don't find yourself in a situation where you've raised more money than you can ultimately make the business worth and that you have this conflict between, you know, whether it's your board members, your investor groups, um, ultimately between you and your investors, there, it's, it can become very unproductive if you're not careful. Yep. Yep. Definitely. I, I like what uh, Mark Cuban says about raising capital is that it's sometimes celebrated as a, accomplishment and an achievement and an end goal in itself but it's not it's you are taking other people's money on the proviso on the promise that you will turn it into much more money you know that you that's right it's a it's an obligation that's what it is it's actually it's when the hard work begins so to speak um so it's not necessarily that it's yeah you've, you've raised all this money it's like right well that's now you've got a you've got a rocket strapped to you, and you've got a timeline <laughs> that you need to to meet to uh to really ten x that twenty x that fifty x that whatever whatever kind of um uh, growth path you're on. Yeah, I have a good friend right now that uh, previously had run a venture backed business, and he uh, a couple of years ago started a a business not quite in sports tech, but it's around health and wellness, and so it's sort of somewhat related. Uh, uh, and he's very intentionally said, I'm not ever going to raise venture money in this thing until I know that I have a potential $500 million, billion dollar outcome. And he said, because I don't think I need to. And as a result, I leave all these optionality open. If somebody comes to me now and wants to buy the business from 
from me for 20 or $50 million. First of all, I'd make a lot of money. Second of all, I control that decision. Mm. I don't feel like I'm letting people down. I don't feel like, you know, and so it's interesting. This is a person that actually built a reasonably successful venture-backed business, but he's chosen at least for the time. But he said, I haven't ruled it out, but I want to make sure before I do it that I, that I know what I'm, what I'm playing for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's great to hear that and very refreshing to hear that because sometimes you come across businesses and you go, I don't know what you, if you're venture backed, I don't know what you're going to do. Like give it another six months um, to figure that out before you start taking people's money um, to, to do that. And that's certainly one of the downsides of a lot of excitement. A lot of SPAC money is that sometimes companies that shouldn't raise uh, and maybe should be looked at a little bit more harshly do end up getting a, a bit of funding. Yeah. And I see that a little bit like in, in terms of some of the categories that we talked about, like, so if you're, you know, you think about coaching, that's a big category, but if you think about coaching, um, actually the number of like division one football programs that have big budgets is much smaller than people think. So if you're developing a coaching software solution that might be applicable that uses AI and big data to help a coach better design a practice, that's sounds by the way, that there, there's probably a real utility for that. The question is how many customers might you have? It's probably mm. 50, 100, right? So if, if they're paying you a couple of million bucks a year, that's great, you can build a big business. If they're paying you $50,000 a year, it still might be a very nice business to build and you might be able to offer other things alongside that and maybe your, your product vision and product roadmap allows for that. But you, it really is important to understand what market you're in and what market you're playing for as you're thinking about the, growing the and business. And also I'd add a layer onto that, the, um, the kind of technical maturity of those programs of those coaches, because there's certainly still a lot for of sure. that exists in all levels of sports technology. So you're saying, well, this is our addressable market. And you go, well, maybe just cut that in half because you've got, <laughs> you've got coaches that don't want to, don't want a bar of it. We have absolutely zero interest and, you know, as long as there's breath in their body, they're not going to use a solution like that. So that's, um, that's something to hey, you look about. at like a major league baseball. So I think a good example, they've been, you know, I think since the onslaught of Moneyball years ago with Billy Bean and whatnot, sort of analytics has been become part of that fabric, if you will, but it, it's taken a 10 year transition to really get, to really embrace the fact that analytics needs to be an important part of player development, of coaching, of where people are out in the field. Uh, and that's taken a long time. And you've seen teams like Tampa Bay, as an example, who in, the, in Major League Baseball, who's been able to really take advantage of data and analytics in terms of all aspects of their operations of their business to put a team on the field that went, won more games than their roster would other, or certainly their salary uh, cap would otherwise suggest they should. Mm. But it's taken a long time to your point, because there's you know, a lot of folks that grow up saying, uh, I don't, I don't believe what's in the data. I believe what I see. And there's, you know, of course, some, some combo of that that's, that's useful. Yeah. And, and do you say that is to kind of return to our starting point? Do you say that, is one of the factors that's changing as well. Like just as the, the legislative changes have kind of swept across the US with um, sports betting, is it also just one of those cultural changes that is now finally catching up? I do, th I, I think so. Uh, I think those are the ones that are slower to, to happen. You know, if you're looking to, 
fundamentally change people's behavior. That takes sometimes takes what time it takes, and it's not always fast, which is why I, I like the idea of trying to take advantage of behavior that has already changed or has happened. Like you look at the way, as I was talking about, kids engaging with sports and how they look at sports, and therefore, what are the opportunities that, that you would want to engage with the next generation of fans in a way that's different. They're already doing it that way. They're already playing daily fantasy sports. They're already looking at video clips. They're sharing things amongst their friends. They're interested in, in players as much as they are teams, frankly, because it's very consistent with how they think about things like data and daily fantasy, um, which is very, very different than you know the way we all grew up, frankly, where we're cheering for teams. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, to, to think about something like the pandemic as an accelerator for that behavioral change um, and, and growth and I guess, mindset around things. Um, Clear, one of your portfolio companies, um, we spoke to Christian Lau, CTO of LAFC, and talking about using that uh, as, a, as a way for people to safely and easily enter a stadium using biometrics. And it's yeah. one of the things that, even in 2019, I think people look at that and go, ooh, that's a little bit Brave New World, a little bit Big Brother. I'm not so sure about that. But really there's been, over the last year, if it means that you can get into a stadium quicker, faster, easier, um, and you know, it, it, and safer also in the sense of security, but also in the right. sense of health, um, then let's go for it. So I think that's really rapidly accelerated adoption and acceptance of those, those kind of technologies. Yeah, it's a good point. Like clear is not on its surface. Wouldn't I think most folks wouldn't call it a sports tech business. But um, as you correctly pointed out, a big portion of clear's future growth is is in the sport venue uh, business. And it actually has always been on the roadmap. Uh, the pandemic has accelerated that and has added in the health component of it. Um, but as an example, uh, it was about a year ago when the uh, NHL was doing their bubble playoffs. It was actually clear that was powering the teams and the players and the coaches entering and into the, the bubble and identifying who they were without having to pull out ID and the like. So it was, you know, an Irish scan or whatnot that it said that this was indeed Alex Ovechkin, that he indeed had passed his COVID test today. And therefore he was free to uh, come into the venue and in a safe uh, and secure way. And so I think, you know, something like clear is actually, you know, go going to very likely be a key fabric of sort of sports tech in a way that people don't probably initially think of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's also, I mean, it's one of the less sexy, glamorous uh, parts of it. You can talk about augmented reality, virtual reality, but it, it goes, all right, what's something happening now? People have to get in and out of the building. They have to do that safely. <laughs> You know, how do you do that? And how do you make that, you know, more convenient, faster, all these other things? So, yeah, it's... Uh, it, and, and they do, and, and Clear's doing things like in a couple of venues, I think in San Francisco and the, the Giant Stadium there, they're actually also tied your identity for those that choose to, to your payments. So that if you want, uh, there's a line for everybody that's sitting playing cash or credit. And then there's a line for people that, maybe ordered through their phone that deliver back and pay through their biometrics, which is as, as uh, Karen at clear says your identity is 
is your payment, right? You are who your, your biometrics say you are, and therefore it's safer, it's secure, it's quicker, it's easier, and it's a, a fan you know, benefit, if you will. And so all those things become part of the infrastructure of a, of a venue. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that, that's going to be interesting to see how that, that rolls out. Obviously with the NFL, I'm going ticketless. That's just one of those, um, those steps on the path to it being uh, just accepted as normal, that it's, it's just part of the experience in the same way the younger generations go, well, I'm just going to watch highlights and follow an athlete. It'll, it'll be part of an experience going to um, a sporting field and, um, previously talked about what 9-11 as a, as a you know, horrible event did to change the face of how we interact with travel. Um, and it just became normalized that I go through and I get scanned and all this kind of stuff and advanced security procedures. I think COVID will have probably over a longer time span, it still have a similar impact on how the actual game day experience is, is changed uh, for sports. Yeah, I think the the game, you know, venues and the activity with fans in venues, it's it'll be a very, I think over the next six to 12 months will be a very interesting time. There's a, obviously stadiums are starting to open up again, at least in the U.S. in mass. And folks, I think sports fans are anxious to get back in. So they're coming back. But I think there's been a, probably some change in behavior in terms of people seeing the, the broadcasts on TV, getting used to, um, not having to park and go into the venue. I, I suspect that there, there'll be a renewed emphasis on making the game day in venue experience even more interesting and engaging for fans, whether that's through the use of some of the 5G technologies or some of the other things. But I think it's going to be uh, a, an interesting time over the next six to 12 months because I suspect if, if uh, team and venue owners don't get creative, then folks may start to not attend in the same level they used to attend because they got pretty comfortable watching on their couches over the, or their phones over the last 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It'll be interesting to see if there's a dead cat bounce from yep. you know, over the next six months to, um, to, to 12 months and using that term. Sorry. If, if I don't know if that's in it, <laughs> that's an Australian phrase or not, but basically <laughs> even a dead cat bounces. It's the idea is that there might doesn't be bounce after, twice. Yeah, exactly. That, that, <laughs> uh, that basically people will be this pent up um, kind of demand for going to uh, live sports and you'll see an uptick in attendance, but then people scratch that itch and go, Hey, I've, I've, I've done that. Now I want to go back to my comfy couch where I have, yeah, my second screen experience and I can co-watch and all that kind of stuff. I so, think that's right. Yeah. I, I, so I think that over the next six or 12 months, you'll start to see even, I think there'll be acceleration in some of the in-game, in-venue experience for the fan to even add more engagement and more value for that uh, to encourage um, that exact trend to continue keep the fan there make it so that that fan says i have to be at that game these are you know this is this is this is my best way to watch watch this event and participate yeah well i mean personally speaking i'm i'm absolutely desperate to get back in so a, a ut baseball game uh, baseball game a few weeks ago and that was a full crowd and that was phenomenal so for everyone who's kind of umming and ironing about it if you're vaccinated or you you in somewhere like Australia where COVID's kind of restricted, get to a game, um, make it happen. So I agree. I've been to a couple of games myself and it's, um, 
it's it's really energizing to it see people to pe- see people out there and enjoying themselves and there with their with their parents or their their kids and with their buddies it's 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 exciting to see it really is very energizing well that's that's a perfect segue to our final question this is something i asked all our guests what is your favorite sporting moment of all time oh geez as uh, as a Boston sports fan, I must say I have been. Uh, You've got a few. You've got an I've embarrassment. Been, I've been yes, yeah, so a bit of an embarrassment of riches. So let me think. I'd say my favorite of all time was, which certainly dates me, is in I think it was in 1987 when the Celtics, which at the team at the time was my favorite team, was playing their arch rival the Detroit Pistons and it was in the playoffs might have even been the fifth game of the playoffs and they threw the ball they were losing by I think one point the Celtics were they had the ball and they lost the ball on the sideline for and it was I think half a second left in the game and they didn't give up they didn't hang their head they didn't complain um, maybe there was a foul, maybe there wasn't, that Detroit threw the ball in, Larry Bird came out of nowhere, got, picked the ball off and passed it to Dennis Johnson, who made an amazing shot, and they won the game. And I think it, for me, defined like everything that I love about sports, which is teamwork, they involved two players, they didn't give up, they didn't, you know, complain to the ref, they played it out, and against all odds, they won the game and the crowd went crazy. And, you know, it was one of those events that I think, you know, even as I describe it, I, I feel like a little chill in my spine. So it's, it, for me, it was a, it was a great memory. That was one of my favorites. I have several, but that was one of them for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's great to hear. And that echoes um, one of the a medium article I, I read where you wrote about DraftKings coming up against similar, uh, similar calls from a ref uh, in terms of, um, blocking the, uh, one of their mergers or acquisitions. And then they just, the, the team just went, no, nah, we're going to focus on what we're doing. And I guess you could argue they went on to win the game um, with their listing and, and everything that's happened from that. So it's good to see yeah. that reflected in business as well. Yeah. They would, they would say the game is still being played. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah <laughs> but yeah. they're certainly still in the game and they're, yeah. 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 They, they, same as my point around raising capital, raising capital, same as listing. It's not the end point. You've got it. That's right. That's right. They would, that's right. They would say that they've had a, they've had a, a good, they had a good first half, but they got to keep first it half. Yeah. <laughs> done. All right. Well, we're looking forward to following the second half um, uh, of, of DraftKings and, and the rest of um, Revolution Growth's uh, investments. And thank you for speaking with us today, Steve. My pleasure, Thomas. Thank you for inviting me. And there you have it. That was Steve Murray, Managing Partner of Revolution Growth. Obviously, incredibly switched on in the investment space, and it's interesting to see um, where he thinks the industry is going and that consolidation that, that's happening and also all this M&A activity. Obviously, more recently, Sport Radar talking about going a traditional IPA route rather than uh, the SPAC that was, was floated, but still kind of going ahead at a pace of knots in terms of M&A activity, in terms of listings, uh, and the acquisitions so an exciting time if you are a sports tech startup that's working in that space and potentially looking at an acquisition and exit in, in data i think 2021 and maybe the next year is probably the hottest time for that as there is this land grab that is happening amongst the sports data providers and, and a lot of uh, money floating around 
for investment. So it'll be interesting to see how it uh, grows and develops, but certainly two of the uh, portfolio companies with Revolution Growth in Sport Radar and DraftKings are incredibly well placed uh, to capitalize on that. So we'll be following that uh, very keenly. As I said, I'm your host, Thomas Loams. Great to have you joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again on Sports Tech Feed. (laughs) 